You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than 4 bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only 3 bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1358, with guest Austin Dimmer. Recorded Friday, September 16th, 2016. Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And, uh, man, I tell you, I feel on top of the world lately. Why is that? Well, you know that I, I've reversed diabetes and lost a lot of weight, right? Yep. And I hit this plateau at 300 pounds. Yeah. And it lasted a couple of months. Wow. And then I, I gave up a few things. I gave up nuts, because nuts were apparently messing me up. And I yeah. also kicked alcohol. You know, I've, I've talked about this before. Yep. It's been four or five days now, and I feel great. And I'm losing weight at a steady clip. But I just found something else. And this is not Better Know Framework. But if anybody, forget about dieting or whatever. But if anybody wants a real bread, that's bread. Not bread-like. Bread-ish. <laughs> bread-ish. <laughs> not Play-Doh disguised as bread. But one gram of carb per slice sourdough bread. Wow. Check it out at greatlowcarb.com. I just got a loaf delivered and it's bread. It's soft, it's bread, and toasted, it's toast. And it's one gram of carbs per slice. And if you think that's not important, consider that the uh, GI or the, the glycemic index. glycemic index of bread, a slice of wheat bread, is higher than sugar higher than fructose. So, even though it's not sweet, it's more sugar than sugar. So, if you really want to, uh, you know, cut carbs in your life and you're, n and you're concerned because you could never give up bread, I love this. Dr. Atkins used to say, yeah, write that on your tombstone. He was, Couldn't give up bread? He was kind of a jerk that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, write it on your tombstone. Well, you, you get impatient, right? Yeah, it's true. And you know that, but this is freaking bread. It's amazing. All right, nice. that's that's why I'm feeling good. How are you doing, Mr. Campbell? Uh, I finally got my uh, my broadcast microphone arm hooked up with my AT2020. Put the Chaotica eyeball in it because we're still doing the sound control in right. the room. That's right. not done yet. Uh, you know, the problem is there's enough done in the basement that the pace is slowing down. Yeah. People aren't incented to finish. And that uh, drives me crazy, but uh, there you go. Yeah, we noticed your, your first basement recording was a little echoey, but yep. that was probably before you put the Chaotica eyeball on it, right? And it all depends on what's in the room and so forth. Like, yeah. you know, when the room's bare, yep. it's pretty hard, it's right? Bouncy. Yeah, so putting more stuff in the room is helping to break up those bounces. But yeah, totally the eyeball, eyeball helps a lot. 
Yeah, good stuff. All right, hey, I got something very interesting and very appropriate for Austin's uh, .NET Rocks coming up right here for Better Know Framework. So roll the crazy music. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? So, as you know, uh, this is about voice control and other things, because Austin's just a big pile of information. We're going to talk to him about a bunch of stuff, I'm sure. But um, thinking about voice control, of course, the first thing relative to what you're talking about is get a good microphone. And um, it turns out that, you know, having a microphone close to your head and close to your face is much better than having a lapel microphone or a microphone that's stationary because when you move your head, move my head this way, it sounds like this. I move my head this way, it sounds like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> we have lots of experience. <laughs> Live <with> demo. <laughs> so I found this, um, the best selling or the highest rated uh, microphone headphone set with noise canceling that works with games. You know, the gamers have figured out um, how to do this stuff. And there's such a big market that companies that make headphones suitable for gaming, they tend to put a lot more bang for the buck into their headphones. Yeah, so you can sell a lot of them. Sell a lot of them, right. Can't be, can't be no Bose stuff, right? Can't be no. I like my Bose stuff, but it is expensive. It is expensive. All right. So this is show 1358. Right. So if you go to 1358.pwop.me, that brings you to amazon.com. And the best one I could find was Mutrees or Mutrees, M-U-T-R-E-E-S. I don't know how to say it. Gaming headset with microphone over ear, gaming headphones with volume control, USB, three and a half millimeter. So it has both USB and uh, audio jack, noise canceling earphones, built in mic, stereo bass, LED light for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, PS4, blue also comes in red. 28 bucks. Wow. 28 bucks. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. What, what, what's a pair of Bose head ca- noise-canceling headphones? $300? Yeah, they, they're expensive, especially if you buy them in an airport. Ask me how I know. <laughs> <laughs> My wife is like, what are you doing buying $300 headphones in the airport? Like, I, I left mine at home. Sorry. Yeah, and I'm not flying without them. Don't be. That's just crazy talk. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. All right. So, that five star, 12 five-star reviews. Okay. I think there's one four-star review, but there's no three, two, or one star reviews this is this is good stuff mm-hmm. and and i also noticed you know that our guest has a, a great headset on and his microphone sounds awesome you would think a guy who's going to do audio would have good audio that's kind of kind of a rule yeah <laughs> we're gonna talk to him in a minute but first richard who's talking to us grabbed a comment uh i had to dig back a little bit actually grabbed a comment on a show 854 uh, which you might remember, because it is March 2013, but this was Mark Heath. He was talking oh, about yeah. N-Audio. That was the leader of the N-Audio project. Right. And we ended up totally geeking out about your work with Voyetra and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Mark's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And just right at the top, and it's admittedly three years old, but just a killer comment. It's from Martin Hanks, who says, any podcast that mentions Ethan Weiner and Roger Nichols in the same show owns a new place of esteem in my heart. <laughs> in this episode, I believe Carl threw out the question of why 44.1 kilohertz is used as a sample rate, and what about 48 kilohertz for that matter? Mm. 44.1 was chosen because it was the highest bandwidth that could be achieved with a, quote, pseudo-video, NTSC, or PAL video signal. 
The samples were encoded as black or white pixels on a black and white video signal and subsequently recorded as video on a only slightly modified video recorder. Huh. The most popular system was the Sony 1630 format, which was the Umatic three-quarter inch video cassette system. Wow. The 44.1 kilohertz was a product of the number of lines and fields by the samples that would evenly divide into each frame of video. I had no idea. This is, but it, I just love the mechanics of this. It just I makes me it. happy. Yeah. Think of it as a closed captioning encoding across the entire video frame rather than being stuffed at the top out of view. The vast majority of the early CDs were mastered on these machines. <laughs> Think about this. The original CDs were made with analog tape doing digital encoding on the tape. It's hilarious. You know, the, um, and I think I mentioned it on this show, but the reason that the original compact disc held as much music as it did is because that is what was required to have Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on it. Right. That yeah. was their gauge. That was their gauge. You say, if we it. can't hear the Ninth Symphony, what's the point? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Martin goes on to say, video recorders were used because at the time, hard drive technology did not have the storage capacity to save all that data. As usual, streaming tape wins out. Yep. Well, at least for a little while, not so much anymore. Yeah. Although, I'll tell you, this the story, I was recently looking at tape backup systems, multi-terabyte storage these days on these little tapes is amazing. Yeah, it is crazy. Ironically, digital audio sampled at 44.1 kilohertz doesn't play well in video today as there are no even samples per video frame. Right. And it takes too many, quote, leap samples. I love that idea, a leap sample. Yep. To compensate. 60 hertz was considered, so there'd be an even number of samples per video frame, but 60 hertz at the time seemed like overkill. Yeah. The 48 kilohertz rate was settled on to be more compatible, because it's evenly divisible, with 24 frames, 29.97 frames, that's almost 30, 59.94 frames, almost 60 frame rates, and also including the UK 32 kilohertz frame rate, because, you know, UK. There are still leap samples, but they're low at about one per every five frames. Yeah. There's an interesting story in a video on YouTube that goes with it. How, um, y y so f we have 44.1 and 48 and good software like Adobe Premiere can automatically just compensate for that. You put a 44.1 and a 48 project, it fixes it. And you put a 48 and a 44.1 project, it fixes that, you know, down samples or up samples accordingly. Right. But, if you play 44.1 recorded music at 48, guess what happens? <laughs> uh, it's sped up. It's sped up, but and it's pitched up. And it's not pitched up by a real interval. It's like right. one and a half half notes. Oh. It's bad. And so there's a video out there of Van Halen, I swear to God, playing jump to a background track. That's at was recorded at forty four one and played at forty eight, oh, and no. they're trying to play to it, and it sounds god awful. <laughs> it sounds so bad, but they keep going through it, and Eddie's like looking at Alex, and they're looking at each other because there's no keyboard player. The drummer's playing to a click track, but it's too fast and it's not in tune. It's their song. They would I know. know. I know. Is some audio engineer lost their job that night? You think? <laughs> Eddie's not happy. No. You need to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's hilarious. If you uh, search for jump 48K or something like that, that's I'll, funny. I'll find it. We'll link to it. So, Martin, thank you so much for your comment. You brought out the audio geek in all of us. 
and a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We downsample them. <laughs> All right. Uh, and now it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, to .NET Rocks and to all of you, Austin Dimmer. He is the founder and technical CEO of Effective Computing. He holds an MSc in ergonomics and a B engineering, a bachelor's of engineering, mechanical engineering. He's a certified specialist in architecting Microsoft Azure solutions and also is a Microsoft certified solutions developer for the Windows Universal platform. For the last nine years, he's dedicated his life to creating the best possible voice command system that runs on the Windows platform. He can speak English, Russian, Spanish, and French. And Austin's final claim to fame is that he was a member of Team Polar Storm, who raced more than 600 kilometers to reach the magnetic North Pole on the 2006 Sony Polar Challenge. The Polar Challenge was at that time the most dangerous and grueling endurance race on the planet. As part of it, he raised more than $20,000 for orphans in Ukraine. Austin, you are a hero, my friend. Thank you and welcome. Well, thanks. Thanks for the introduction. It's great to be on the show. Hey, one more thing before we get started. Austin, are you a Beatles fan? Absolutely. And actually, I sang my wife a Beatles song earlier today. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Well, I was talking to just yesterday. I had, we throw birthday parties here at the studio. And, uh, you know, this is one of the things we do. And some guy came in with his daughter and his wife and, and he wanted to check out the studio. And it turns out that he is a senior vice president, Tom is his name, for sports and entertainment, uh, properties at the Mohegan Sun. So he was interested in my band, first of all, but he was telling me all these stories. He's a drummer and he said, you know, I met Ringo when Ringo came to the Mohegan Sun. Wow. And I asked him this question and this has to do with our, our, the, the comment. I asked him this question, that black luster Ludwig set that you made so popular by playing in the Beatles, it was so different than all the other sets that people were playing at the time. They're playing Slingerland sets and these, you know, silver tiger things and whatever. What made you decide to, you know, that make that the iconic drum set that everybody would try to copy later? And he goes, to tell you the truth, I just saw it in the window. And I guess the only one they had, so I bought it. It's like it's like the forty four point one or the kilohertz thing. Yeah. How that came because it was a limitation in the equipment, or you know the uh, the the length of the CD because of the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It's just an accident. Yeah. How many things that we use today and count on were accidents? Well, the QWERTY keyboard, for instance, is right. Maybe debatable. Um, and actually, it's I'll I'll talk about that for a second. That the the QWERTY keyboard apparently was a, a relic from the Industrial Revolution, whereby it was designed deliberately to hinder productivity because <laughs> if they type if they type too fast, the arms of the mechanical typewriters would get jammed, and they'd have to stop, unjam the arms, and then start typing again. Oh so God. apparently, and I don't know if this is urban myth or if it's actually true, but apparently the QWERTY layout was specifically to to slow people down from typing fast. 
That is so funny. Um, so the Dvorak layout, obviously, it's not gaining traction in the market, but it's a more efficient way of having the, the more frequent letters closer to your hands so your fingers need to move less and so forth. But right. The, the argument wasn't that they necessarily slowed them down as much as they move the most common keys as far apart as possible so that when the arms came in, they weren't likely to collide. Like you look okay, at how far yeah. apart an S uh-huh. and a T are, that, that kind of thing. They're all meant to be spaced far enough apart so that your most likely combinations don't conflict. That happens to also be slower by half. Yeah. But, you know. Okay, yeah. But it is funny how standards emerge, right? Yeah. We've got billions of people around, around the world stuck on QWERTY now. <laughs> yeah. Well, most of them are typing with just their thumbs. I don't think it's that big of a deal anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, phones, yeah, of course. So did you guys actually race to the magnetic north, like 78 degrees north? Like, which magnetic north did you go to? Because it moves. Uh, yeah, well, the, the magnetic pole, as you probably know, fluctuates and moves around around the world, um, dependent on environmental conditions. So there's a place called Resolute Bay in northern Canada, and that's yeah. where we com- commenced the expedition. Um, and we raced to the location of the North Pole at some date prior to that. I think it was like 2000 or 1996 or something. So the only thing north of Resolute Bay is ice. So you were racing across pack ice. Uh, yeah, and we raced across a few islands and we raced through an area called Polar Bear Pass where apparently 80% of the world's population of polar bears live. Nice. Um, wow. Did they say hi? So- well, actually, I did see a polar bear, and it was it was it was hunting us. There's no doubt. It was downwind. It was uh, checking the tents out, and luckily at this point, I we it was a race, so there was checkpoints on the race, so you, you would get checked by doctors and made sure that you're sane and healthy. So we just arrived in the checkpoint, and I went outside the tent to fill up the stoves with fuel, and I noticed the polar bear raised the signal that the polar bear was there. Even there was a husky dog on, on the, 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 the checkpoint camp, and the husky dog hadn't noticed the polar bear. It was me that saw it. I, I called myself eagle-eyed. Nice. Um, one of the, the people that was helping the expedition, they got on a snowmobile. Luckily, we were at the base camp. If we'd been out on the, the, the ice, it would have been a lot more frightening. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was great to see a bear in its real natural environment. It was actually a, a, a long-held dream. Um. My dad had put the Kingdom of the Ice Bear on the pro and on TV as as kids, and we and we love polar bears and stuff. So yeah. to see one in its real environment was a special moment, really. And but yeah, at the same time, it was scary because this bear was hunting us. If if I hadn't noticed that, it, it quite possibly could have broken into our tent and and attacked us. It's possible. So, well, I suppose we should talk about voice control. 20 minutes in. <laughs> so Richard has this great story about a parrot. And a dragon naturally speaking board before it was software. Uh, this was on a actual card that you could put in a PC. And it was probably an AT or 386 or something like that, Richard, wasn't it? I think it might have been an even an 8086. Wow. It was a full length ISI board. I remember that much. And we wired it to X10. So now the parrot had control of the room, and that has issues. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, so we, right. we've we come a long way since those days. And in fact, I was really happy to discover all the richness that was in uh, speech recognition just in .NET, all the way from, I think it was 2.0. Yeah, 
all the way up to now. And now Universal Windows has it. I did a demo, and, and I'll let you take over, but I just want to tell this one story. I did a demo for kids who didn't know anything about Windows and what was buried in there. And I, you know, I have a trained Windows profile for voice recognition, so it's really good. And I pulled up Word for Windows, and I just started talking, and it started typing into it. And they were absolutely blown away. They had never seen anything like that. They never knew. And these were middle school kids who have phones, you know, who probably have Siri. But they were just absolutely – I heard gasps. <laughs> yeah, well, Windows Windows speech recognition is actually a very, very powerful uh, software uh, system and an API, but it's very obscure and it was never very much promoted. I don't think um, yeah. the API I don't believe is very well documented for for developers to take advantage of. But it's getting better now. The story with Cortana has improved things, but still, I think there's a little way to go. But a great quality voice voice recognition system should wow people because it's 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 definitely a, a great way of interacting with the machines. I have a I have a one technical hurdle, and it's nothing I can do anything about. I don't think that is my car has Bluetooth, and that's how I interact with um, my phone. You know, when when I get a call, it comes through the speakers and all that stuff, and I can listen yeah. to audio, but. Uh, if I try to use Cortana or Siri or any of those things, it it can't hear me through the Bluetooth, and it can't hear like yeah. for some. There's some kind of weird disconnect there, so I can't yeah, use well, voice recognition in my car. I I personally believe that the quality, the audio quality of Bluetooth headsets is uh, very very poor. Um, any tests that I've done using a Bluetooth headset, and I have used the latest Bluetooth 3, I think it's standard, uh, with some really top-end GN Netcom uh, wireless headsets uh, that are used in call centers, and they're supposed to have a great quality yeah. uh, audio signal, but they they really were not up to scratch. Right. In my case, it's not a matter of it not understanding what I'm saying and saying, I didn't understand. It doesn't respond. Like, it's not getting the audio signal for some reason. Right, And right. it probably is just my car, but it, it makes me a little bit upset because, you know, I really want to have this experience and I can't. Uh, and it's a Honda Sierra. Well, hopefully, hopefully the, 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 the Bluetooth uh, system improves slightly. It's yeah. definitely had promise, but I don't think it's ever quite delivered on its promise yet. Yep, agree with that. Bluetooth kind of sucks. Well, and car yeah. gear in general tends to be pretty behind the times. Yep, sure is. But I, I almost wonder if we're we're headed towards these. You know, voice recognition is solved. Just this past week, there's been more news articles about error rates approximating like near human listening accuracy. Yeah, you know, they, they we're we're getting down there to just a couple of percentage points of error now. Yeah, yeah, in multiple languages as well. It's uh, there's definitely some great innovation going on in this space. So, do does your system have advantages over even cloud-based systems, which are seeming to be the best performing in terms of accuracy? Yeah, well, I um, I kind of believe in getting the balance right between local processing power and distributed cloud computing power. Okay. And I think I think the latency issue of sending your voice signal up to the cloud 
uh, having it do its processing, recognize what you say, and then send a response back. I think that latency introduces a small usability problem. The, the, sure. The, you know, Windows, I think Windows 8, when they brought it out and it was fast and fluid, there was a sort of 200 millisecond response time to to make sure that the user interface didn't freeze up any more than that. Mm, and, right. and my experience with Cortana, although it's great from the point of view of you don't have to train a user voice profile and you can just kind of get up and running and, and, and you're good. Uh, but the latency issue, you've got to have the internet connection. It's got to be a decent connection. And, and if you have those conditions, it can work pretty well. But there's so many times when I've used it and it says, sorry, I can't communicate with the internet just yeah. now. Please try again. And you give up. And Mark Miller brought this up in that the perception when there's latency, when a voice recognition system fails to respond in even uh, you know, a millisecond or 10 milliseconds or whatever it is, you know, after, a, I think he said 200 milliseconds, if there's less than 200 milliseconds delay between when you say, you know, what time is it? And it tells you the time, then you don't feel like you're interacting through a system. You feel like you're talking to your computer, your computer is talking back, or you're talking to your phone, your phone is talking back. But if there's that perceived delay, now you think, I'm talking to something that is interpreting it and like, I'm not talking to my computer. I'm talking to some system, which is lagging and coming back. Like the perception drives your, your subconscious uh, assumptions about what you're actually doing. Yeah. You know, it it suddenly hit me that there's a, you know, we're hardwired for conversational modes and there's a certain correct amount of pause you know, you could go the other way. If your system was fast enough that literally as the last sound is coming out of your mouth, it's already responding. Yeah. That would be weird, too. Like, there's there's got to be a right amount of delay. Well, if you think about you and me, Richard, when we talk and we take turns talking, people say, you know, we're like uh, <laughs> two brains, one voice, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. We We have figured out the right amount of pause to so that everybody gets to hear us and we don't talk over each other and there's not too much of a delay. I don't know how much of that is actually editing. <laughs> uh, I probably not a whole lot because <laughs> we do it in person. Well, yes, we do. Yeah, I I'll just bring up that that I think specifically in touch based interactions, the 200 millisecond thing is very probably critical. Yeah, but I think in in voice systems my experience i've been programming this system for nine years now and the reason why i programmed it on windows speech recognition was that the response times of windows speech recognition were the fastest by far compared to dragon dragon naturally speaking which was the other alternative platform at that time to build on so that over the last six years or so i've logged every single command that i've made to the system and i the average phrase recognition time, so the time to say the command, is 0.81 seconds. That oh. That's over about a 300,000 voice command data set because some of them I didn't record wow. uh, the, the, the times. But 0.81 seconds is the average phrase time to say a command like open word or whatever, right? So 0.81. The average command execution time, this is from... This is from when you begin to speak 
until the command is fully executed is 1.56 seconds. Huh. So, so that's till the program has actually opened. So I think that's, I think that's within the realms of uh, good performance. I mean, if I was so frustrated with this system, I, w- I would have given up years ago. But the performance has been so good that I've stuck with it and kept believing that, that it's going to be, uh, you know, the, the way forwards. But so 1.56 as the average over 300,000 commands is very performant, I would say. And my, my perception of that performance is this is good. Yeah. So 810 milliseconds is the average time response time. Uh, no, no, that's that's from when I start to say like open word or that's the average phrase recognition time. So whenever oh. I say a phrase, a phrase is a discrete command. Yeah. So whenever I say a phrase, that takes 0.81 seconds to recognize it. Now, it. if you compare that against, I've just, let's say it's a open extensions manager or extensions manager in visual studio I, I go to the extensions manager frequently and all i need to say is extensions manager yeah so that takes me on average maybe 0.81 seconds according to this data right but yeah. if i need to go to the menu the tools or options or even there's like you're you're getting information overload by which menu is it in is it in tools or uh, yeah it's in tools okay and then you drop down tools and you've got well, probably 30 choices on the tools menu and you, you'll select the extensions manager. So that, that, that took me, I don't know how many seconds, but it's probably in the region of uh, three to 10 seconds, I would imagine. Um, cause no one probably knows the shortcut for extensions manager. Um, <laughs> some, someone might, but I don't know. I don't know it, but I do know that extensions manager exists. So I'll just say extensions manager and bang, I'm there. So it's not so much just the responsiveness of the command is. How deep is that command in the system and how easy is it to remember and how can you access it as fast as possible? So I think that's where I think the value of a voice command system lies in the fact that you can access so many different commands so so quickly. Um, and it does occur to me that we're more tolerant of voice delays than we are of touch delays because, it, you know, people do have think time where touch shouldn't have think time. Yeah, because we're used in the physical world. When we touch something, it, it moves. So yeah. touch screens, I think, are trying to simulate the physics of the real world yeah. and make it feel natural. But there is a flexibility um, to voice interaction that's a, a little more tolerant here one way or the other. Yeah. I would argue too fast is probably more in the uncanny valley than too slow. I got a story about uncanny valley. But first, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to test a little script I just wrote. What's that? Hey, Siri, tell us a joke. I'm still waiting for you to be funny. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, garbage in, garbage out, I there suppose. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first... Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. 
All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Paul Sturgill. Congratulations, Paul. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you. A real clap today. Paul Sturgill just won the D-Experience subscription from Developer Express. A big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And Austin, it's your turn now. If you had $5,000 US to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, if if I'm lucky, I'm going to look on eBay and find two HoloLens. <laughs> <laughs> for, Good for, luck uh, with going, that. Going cheap. <laughs> but I don't know if if they're still going at ten thousand dollars a piece at the moment. Uh, but I think what? now that there's there's more more availability of them, I think that there might be a few going for a decent price. So I think I would uh, pitch in with two Hololens, um, and I would try and sneak in a little copy of the Kerbal Space Program because Richard's uh, turned me on to the Ker- Kerbal Space Program, and Uh-oh, I want to yeah. get. I want my kids there uh, learning about space and rockets and things. So <laughs> I haven't seen a HoloLens edition of Kerbal yet. That would be awesome. Oh man. But I I am playing Kerbal on my 43-inch 4K and uh, it is quite immersive. Yeah, I I saw a tweet you'd put out with a, a snapshot of your TV with Kerbal on it and it looked pretty <laughs> awesome, yeah. That's a that's a monitor, dude. That's not the TV. <laughs> All right, that's a monitor. Oh my goodness me, that, that, that's great. It's, uh, it's a monster. It looks a lot of fun. I think you ought to write that version, Richard. Yeah, make a HoloLens edition of Kerbal. Yeah, absolutely. Get everybody motion sick. That would be incredible. But I think the HoloLens is going to be. It would be great to to mess around programming on it. Oh, I've yeah. not used one yet. It's so much fun. I have to limit the amount of time I use it. Otherwise, I'll be on it all day, and uh, people will get angry at me. <laughs> yeah. We have things we have to do. That's right. Stop playing with your little toys. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, before the break, you mentioned the Uncanny Valley, and I just have an observation to make about that. We used to talk about the Uncanny Valley being the sort of almost real but not real creepy uh, feeling that we get when we see uh, a humanoid-type robot that's just a little too robotic and a little too human-y and just not... A little creepy, right? And we applied that in the last several years to uh, what we, I think it was phone gap apps, right? That Richard, the uh, yep. apps that are written with HTML that basically take too long to respond. And so, you know, you press a button and, you know, nothing happens for a half second. So you press another button, you know, and then the screen refreshes. And then that second button you press is actually something else, which might be launch nuclear missiles or something. But I have found lately that I'm getting this delay with native apps on my iPhone, on my iPhone 6 Plus. I'm getting this delay all across the board. So Mm. it's not just a a matter of, you know, uh, hybrid apps versus native apps, not just a matter of, um, you know, this speech recognition. I think Uncanny Valley is here to stay, and it's probably happening just because the hardware isn't keeping up with the amount of stuff that I have either running in the background or, uh, you know, that kind of thing going on. 
And that may be one of the reasons why you're getting, you know, faster processors all the time, just so that we can keep on top of that stuff. Yeah. And I think that's probably why Microsoft made such a big deal about it with the launch of Windows 8, this 200 millisecond thing with yeah. async programming and, and all that. So I think, I think yeah, it's it's absolutely critical, in, and especially in touch interfaces and even the latest iPhones, if they can't keep up with the latest version of the OS. But um, I've, I've experienced that myself. But, you know, it's... Uh, Windows Phone is dead, and it was brilliant. <laughs> it was, and I hope the I hope the UI isn't dead because it's it's great. Yeah, yeah. Me- it's almost like you know Metro has gone away now, hasn't it? Because Win Ten, which I'm perfectly happy with, they've just sort of suppressed all of those elements. Yeah, and the phone's God. just not going anywhere. Media Center's gone. Like all of the elements, Zoom's gone. Everything that ever used Metro kind of gone. Can I just say I loved Media Center? Yeah. Especially the the slideshow. I loved it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Uh, You know, the first part of the show, we were talking a little bit about Bluetooth headsets. And and I realized the three of us are all microphone snobs, right? I mean, we've all spent enough time. We care about microphones a lot. And most people couldn't care less. Like, doesn't even, it isn't even in the top 100. Doesn't really matter. How do you? I got to think with your product, uh, Austin. The microphone matters. Like, what do you recommend? What's what makes sense to the average person who's not into microphones? Well, the the the, the standard in the voice recognition community is the Sennheiser ME3 microphone, which is what I'm recording with right now. Sounds great. By and the I'm way. using a simple, cheap. Uh, or not cheap, but good value for money, a USB sound pod called the Buddy USB 7G, I think the, the name of the product is. So the, the Sennheiser ME3 microphone combined with the Buddy USB sound pod is a great combination. And I would say that's the lowest price, but greatest performance. It's a wired system, but I, I do think it gives great quality voice. And I've never had a problem with it, delivering good quality audio to the voice command system. But in my daily use, I, I, I try and use uh, wireless sound systems um, because I like to be able to freely wander around the flat or just get up and go and make myself tea or whatever. So having the freedom to move around is important for me. And so I've tried tons of different uh, microphones. Uh, the one I'm using just now is a Line 6 wireless digital audio system and it's used i think by singers and performing artists on stages and so forth and i've found the performance of that to be good one important aspect of the microphone is to have a unidirectional microphone rather than an omnidirectional microphone yeah so that means it's it's only listening to the sound from my mouth not from the sound from the entire room the omnidirectional microphones are listening for for sound from all all angles yeah. So the unidirectional microphone is important for good quality uh, audio to a speech recognition system. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Carl mentioned about the, the the microphone that he had found for the gaming systems. I've I've tried gaming system microphones myself. The one I used was a Steelcase wireless. Uh, I, again, I think it was using a wireless digital audio signal, so there was no compression on the signal, and it was a. Uh, it was good, but the quality of the microphone was just not up to the 
same standard that the the pro level audio things like the Sennheiser or the the Line Six. Yep. Um, those types of companies that that they make. I mean, these these are the microphones that bands would use to record musical right. instruments. I'm sure. Yeah, You've got you're experience right. of that. You're right. And I would, I would almost chalk that up to, and I don't know because I haven't heard the difference or tried them both, but I would chalk that up to the wirelessness of it. Um, this, this one that I mentioned is not wireless. It's a, a wired. Okay. Connection. Right. Well, wired, yeah. wired does help How? to have a good quality wireless signal. There's, there's yeah. a new, uh, digital audio transmission, uh, protocol that was invented by line six, I think. Yeah, uh, but now Sennheiser and everyone is starting to use it, uh, and it it doesn't compress the audio at all. So uh, the the audio that receives at the, at the receiver is the same audio that was recorded at the the transmitter, and and it's it's just a great signal. And I think in the future that's going to be the good standard. I think it gives higher quality audio than Bluetooth. Yeah. I, also, I have I don't know if it's this one, but I did buy a gaming headset from um for my wife who wanted to uh use it for something i can't remember what it was oh maybe just like skyping or whatever and i used it and i tried using it but the microphone had way too much bass you know it was way too bassy it didn't it wasn't clear enough but i can't say that about the one that i've that i just mentioned i because i haven't used it right right well, right. the, 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 the steel case one that I used and I tried it with the voice control system because actually one of my holy grails is to be able to uh, do digital audio production. I like, well, I, I, I've got a, a sideline hobby of making techno music. Uh, and, uh, and don't we um, all? Well, <laughs> some people, I, I enjoy making drum and bass and, and uh, I, I want to be able to have voice control through the voice control system. But I want to be able to have a monitor with with good quality audio coming to my ears, um, and s- because you don't want the audio coming into your microphone because the, the signal is going to be all messed up for for the voice commands. Yeah. Uh, so for me in this specific scenario, I want to have good quality monitoring with with headphones and a good quality signal for a microphone. And I thought the steel case was going to come and top that bill, and it kind of does. But it's just not quite good enough audio on the on the microphone, which is a, a bit of a letdown. Yeah. I did see a Razer, uh, I think Razer Computing. They make beautiful laptops, and and uh, I saw them with a, a wireless headphone microphone system uh, recently that that looked interesting. So yeah. I think there's a lot of in, in innovation going on in that market. It's definitely an evolving space. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I talked to uh, Mark Heath just recently because. Uh, we're looking into Q programming and wave files, and I didn't know if N Audio had uh, the facility to do that, and it kind of does. Um, Qs are um, segments or chunks of wave files that have time-stamped markers, basically, and uh, you can you can embed these right in wave files as part of the spec. And so I did some. Uh, some preliminary programming just against the spec, just with byte arrays, you know, to find the data and be able to read where they are. But, um, and, and so does his N audio, it can read them and it can write them, but it can't delete them. So, um, but he also mentioned that he's got a course on Pluralsight, um, about universal windows programming audio. 
And he says, it just went live. He says, the Audiograph API is actually quite nice to work with. He covers mixing, transcoding, MIDI, synthesis, and effects in the course. So if you look up Mark Heath, UWP Audio Fundamentals, that's his course. And I plan to take it because that's something that I really need to learn about right now. Okay. That sounds like a good course. Yeah. Yeah, and audio is just a great library. It is the -the state-of-the-art open-source audio MIDI library for .NET. Yeah, I think I've come across it. I've not looked in depth into that that library yet, but I've come across it for sure. Is it on GitHub? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think if you just, you know, Google Bing and audio, you'll find it. Yeah. So what about the Cortana libraries, or are they called the Bing libraries? What the heck are they called anymore? Cognitive services? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I think they're, is it the Cortana suite? or Yeah, there's a lot of... uh, um, branding issues around that stuff. Um, the the Cortana system is great. The, the, it, there's there's some good evolution there. Um, there are some limitations. The the latency thing that I mentioned earlier, but there's also if you start building more complex grammars, there's a limitation in the number of commands that you can you can have the system recognize. Right. So. Um, some of my grammars contain literally thousands of commands and those grammars are uh, kind of dead in the water when you're programming against Cortana. So the Windows native speech recognition uh, API is, is still better and more performant in those cases. But certainly it's, it's improving uh, every year. And I've raised an issue, I think, on the Windows Universal Platform user voice feedback site where I've ask them to remove those limitations of programming against Cortana because I think, I think as, as Cortana evolves and it's got, I think they're probably building in local processing capabilities, especially now that it's on windows, uh, windows, the, the, the desktop windows system rather than just windows phone. I think that it'll have more capability to do, do local processing and uh, then the latency issue is not a problem. So if you can program it to listen to whatever commands you want, and it's got good, highly responsive local native processing, then you've kind of got the best of all worlds. Because Cortana, I've used it twice this week. I set, set two appointments in my calendar, which is great for, say, uh, remind me to meet with Richard at 10 a.m. on next Wednesday, and it'll bring up the calendar appointment. So that, that kind of thing I find useful. And yeah. also currency conversions. I, I do a lot of currency conversions. I'm living in Spain. I have to convert into pounds or dollars or whatever. And I'll just say convert 5,000 euros into US dollars. And I get the answer. And I think that's good. So certain use cases I'm finding I'm gravitating towards using Cortana. Okay. But is Cortana specifically mobile focused? No, no. The Cortana is on the Windows desktop. So okay. I think you press Windows C. And you've got Cortana, or you you can probably have it listen to Hey Cortana, but I've seen it go haywire in a few presentations where it's it's listening yeah. too much. Yeah, that's happened to Richard actually on stage. Sure. Hey, um, right, so, it started talking to yeah, yeah. So you you're saying your bio that you're dedicating your life to creating the best possible voice command system. When you mean creating, you mean tweaking and using. You're not rewriting your own voice command system, right? Uh, no, you're, no. I'm I'm basically I think putting the glue between what the Windows native platform offers, and then programs that run on Windows. Okay. So I got a question. So if you're developing this system on your desktop PC, 
do all of your tweaks and all of your commands and all of that stuff follow you on your Windows phone or on your Windows tablet or, you know, how, how does that work off of your PC? Yeah, well, that that is a feature that I'm I'm working on at the moment and trying to get synchronization using Azure Blob Storage and and sync the grammars between different machines. Yeah, I've not quite I've not solved that problem right now, um, but I'm very close, a few months away from getting that absolutely seamless between any machine you log into and you've got this software installed. Yeah, you're actually writing .NET code. Uh, to do the speech recognition with commands and phrases using r- writing your own grammars then. Yeah, 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 yeah basically. This is what I, I spent a lot of time doing this um, a couple of years ago. And well, I've been doing it for practically my entire career. But I, and I found a couple of things. One is that if you don't have a keyword that wakes up or a key phrase that wakes up the voice recognition system or your speech recognizer, you're going to get all those haywire results. But that's why I like, you know, the model of the USS Enterprise, which is computer by itself. And mm-hmm. and you need to be able to differentiate between me saying the word computer in a sentence, like I just did, and computer with space on each side. And yeah, there are ways yeah, well, to do that with the, with the uh, grammar. You, there's a placeholder that you can... Uh, put in yeah, to and, the grammar. And, yeah, and Cortana has similar keywords that you can you can identify. Like I can say voice shortcuts open .NET rocks and it will open your website, but it knew that that program is voice shortcuts. Right. But that that's a that's a common paradigm in these systems at the moment. But personally, when you're using, like I'm using a voice command system to say. Uh, I'm coding in Visual Studio using it. Um, it recognizes all the names of the classes, all the names of the methods, uh, uh, right. 5,000 commands in Visual Studio and so forth. And then I flick into Photoshop and, and it's it's switched context and I've got about seven or 800 commands in Photoshop. Yeah. So so I don't want to say Photoshop, no. uh, new layer, Photoshop, but- delete layer, Photoshop, undo three, Photoshop, redo three. Yeah, that's true. But do you find yourself censoring what you say? Like sometimes when I'm writing code, I look at a class name, which might happen to be foo class. And I go, foo class? What's that? You know, or so I'll talk to myself. Do you, do you find you have to hold your tongue? Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's actually, I think it's, it's a useful thing for me. The way I think about it is like they say one of the hardest problems in computer science is naming convention, right? Yeah. Or naming naming your classes and methods and stuff. And it's a difficult problem for sure. Uh, I think because I'm trying to program use voice recognition system, I'm trying to make my names of classes and methods uh, easily recognizable yeah. by a speech recognition system. And that might mean that, that I'm writing, you know, more clearly thought about phrases like grammar browser. So I say open grammar browser and it'll bring me straight to that file or, or open speech recognition mediator and it'll bring me to the mediator between my program and the speech recognition system. Yeah. So I can get to source files that I'm frequently interacting with really quite quickly, which I think is a good thing for a programmer getting to the things you need fast. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do think that uh, the point you're making about the, the the keyword initializer, I think, is good in some scenarios. But I think that when you've got when you when I've just told it to listen for these five thousand things that you right. can say in Visual Studio, it it recognizes them within point eight one of a second, and with 
93% confidence interval. Yeah. So it's getting it right almost all the time. Maybe the answer is to have a keyword to temporarily tell it to stop listening. You know, like if you well, get a phone I say call, microphone off. Okay. <laughs> Oh, I just good. say microphone off, and I've said it probably 30,000 times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you have the, the the microphone on your desktop with the little blue, it, I just press it sometimes and or quite often just turn it off. Yeah. But I do find manual control, like Windows, Windows, uh, C, uh, I forget the shortcut key right now, Win, Windows, um, uh, it's not, Windows C is Cortana now, but uh uh, I've not got my normal Whatever. keyboard in front of me, so that, that I'm, I'm missing it. But um, n- normally, I use uh, the window key. I think it's Windows Alt or something. Okay. And, and that but just muting your microphone my- is just a good skill everybody should have. Right. Right. It's like this is one thing that will make conference calls more bearable is if everybody learns how to use the flipping mute key. It's true. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Having control over that, if it's on or off, and being aware, is it on or off? That is definitely, I think, a a good thing to be able to do. There's nothing worse than being on a conference call and you hear dogs and pots and pans, and you got to tell people. Somebody's going through the drive-thru, you know, (laughs) somebody's telling somebody about the conversation they're having, (laughs) thinking they're muted, you know. It's horrible. It is horrible. Everybody yeah. needs, and it, one would argue that our software and our equipment doesn't make a mute button easy, and doesn't make being muted obvious. Oh uh, yeah, and it, it doesn't doesn't put it in our face. Yeah. It's got to be in our face. It should be right there. Yep. Yeah. So uh, Austin, this is great stuff. Do you have uh, more resources we can find online? Yeah. Well, the the company website effective computing dot com. There's a uh, uh, a little bit of material on there, but obviously to anyone listening to the show, they can contact me directly, Austin at effective-computing.com or look me up on Twitter. It's Austin Dimmer. Um, and I'll be happy to, to interact with anyone who's got an interest. Oh, and you actually sell a voice shortcuts library. I just saw that. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not actually selling it at this point. I'm, I'm in, still in the beta phase. Oh. I've never been happy with the the quality of the program yet to release it in the wild. Oh, I see. Um, but certainly, I can get arrange anyone who's got an interest to be on a private beta and get early access to to what I've got. Coming. So these are pre pre done grammars. Do you do them as SGML files? Uh, not SGML. They're just actually XML files. Okay. Uh, and they're using the a schema that I've created that conforms with Windows speech recognition. Oh, great. Um, wow, very so cool. It's, yeah, it's, sign me up. I'd do the beta for you. I love all right, that. All right, cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm registering right now. I'm pressing the big blue button. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I thought there was an interesting uh, line with you because I know you did that gesture pack library. Right. Yeah, and, so uh, the gesture pack first version I don't offer anymore. And the reason is the voice recognition so got in the way of doing anything productive with it that, and especially for non-English speaking people, uh, it just didn't, and, and people with heavy accents it just didn't work. So, yeah. um, yeah, rather than try that, the, the, the version that's out there on GitHub now, which you can find at gesturepack.com. There's a link to it. Uh, it's for Connect 2.0 only, um, and I don't use voice recognition at all. So Yeah, because I've been really quite interested in, in taking 
this uh, command log that I've got of all the, the commands that I've issued. And say, for instance, I go into Photoshop. I want the top 10 commands to have a gesture with connect. Yeah. So I can use either voice or if it's a noisy environment and I've got, a, you know, like north, south, east and west, even yeah. if it was four commands in Photoshop, like cut, paste or undo, uh, you know, that I think that would be quite useful if the connect is also watching and, and, and you can interact that way. And I, I thought about using this gesture pack library that, that you've you've created it looks pretty good well let me know if you need any help with that sure yeah good stuff all right well this is great austin dimmer thanks for spending this hour with us we we totally geeked out on a whole variety of subjects that was (laughs) awesome (laughs) thanks yeah it's been a pleasure thanks for having me on all right and we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a